everybody, how you doing? Well, that's good. Welcome to Broad Street Hockey Radio. That's right, BSH Radio. My name is Bill Matz. I'm your director of fun and games for the evening, afternoon, morning, whenever the hell you're, you're listening to this. Time has, time, time doesn't exist anymore. Neither do days or months, really anything. Uh, they're talking about doing an NHL draft in June, and I'm like, isn't it August? What do you mean June? And it's like, no, it's it's May or something. I don't know. Anyway, we got a jam-packed show for you here on Broad Street Hockey. That's right. We keep turning out the content, even though it's mostly made up. So uh, let's just get right down to it. Let's get to the recently emigrated Kelly Hinkle. Good news is, Bill, that nothing is real. <laughs> this podcast is fake. Sports are fake. Money is fake. Life is fake. Everything's right. fake. And also, I would just like to say that there hasn't been in my opinion, a uh, sufficient amount of praise bestowed upon us for our new theme song. Yeah, I really thought people were going to go nuts I over this thing. I thought people were going to fucking love it, and nobody I'll cares. I'll tell you, I, you know what I heard the other day, though, was our old theme song, and I hate it so much, but it did, like, it did stoke some nostalgia. Knock Knock or the, the old, old one? No, no, the, uh, the, orig- the old Albert song that I hated okay. so much. That's <laughs> <laughs> a go classic. Back to that one. Just to piss people off. That's fine. Yeah, yeah we definitely need to uh, cut into our listenership more, I'll tell you. <laughs> it actually hasn't been that bad. I want to thank everyone listening. Uh, you've, been, you've been hooking it up. You've, been, you've stuck with us. We're, we keep me- making content, and you keep listening to it as I Seriously. stutter my way through these intros. But uh, thanks a lot for that. Yeah, I love and you also, so much. Yeah, also uh, thank you for joining us, Charlie O'Connor. Hey, guys. From TheAthletic.com. Transcribing interviews is the fucking worst, and I hate it. That's, honestly, it's one of the, re- I mean, I don't want to be a journalist because I just don't want to. But that right there, that's the sort of tedium that I'm like, nah, I'm good. I'll <laughs> just. Can't you invest in some kind of software robot to do that for you? No, I've tried. They're, they're not good. Oh, boo. I've actually found that, like, it, it kind of works. Um, it's helpful. That sort of software is helpful if, let's say, you did, like, a 10-minute interview. And you just kind of want like a general transcription that you can just pull a couple quotes from and be done rather than having to transcribe the whole thing. That's when it's useful. When it's not useful is when you have a 20, 25 minute long interview that you have to transcribe in full because uh-huh. it's the, the, the automatic transcription is so jumbled and screwy that you end up spending just as much time fixing it as you would just transcribing it straight through. And there's just, you have no sense of momentum when you're doing that anyway. So like, I tried using the, the computerized transcription with this interview I'm doing, and after about five minutes, I was, after about five minutes into the interview, I just decided, you know what, honestly, I'm making more progress if I just transcribe it all in full. So, it's the worst, and I would not recommend. And this is the kind of effort that gets put into all of Charlie's articles, so if you haven't already, subscribe to The Athletic, uh, do it through Charlie so uh, they know that he's good. And he can keep doing that and keep doing this show. It would be awesome. Thanks, Bill, uh, and guys, thanks everybody who subscribed. Ju- yeah, yeah, that's right. There's all. It's always something for free for everyone not named Bill Matz. Those are the <laughs> goddamn promos you're running. <laughs> I just that's, wanted a that, second T-shirt, and I can't even. I get got that. that. Well, I got that free shirt, and it was like, okay, cool. But it's also like me and my man tits wearing a shirt that says the Athletic. I'm like, no, I'm not trying to be ironic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's awesome 
Oh man. So uh, so this has nothing to do with with anything we're gonna talk about. But you two are like uh, reasonably functioning adults who usually know what happens when things happen. So I'm gonna ask you this question. I want to know what would happen if, say, I made a pot of coffee and then poured that pot of coffee back into the coffee maker and then used it to brew a second pot of coffee. Inception. A black hole like, opens it, up in the universe and it swallows you. Would it make the world's strongest coffee or would my coffee maker just break? I feel like if you did that several times, it would probably fuck up the coffee maker. I feel like you could do it once for science to see what happens. I have a feeling you're just going to end up with like really, really, really strong coffee, which is not a bad thing. That would make sense, right? I'm speaking to someone who does not drink coffee and has probably tried coffee about twice in my entire life and didn't like it either time. So I'm not the right person to ask here. God damn it. All right. I'm, I'm going to have to like. I have to say I'm struggling with hotel coffee life because they give you these fucking pods and the pods make one cup and they start you off with two pods. And I'm like, OK, so you've given me one half morning's supply of coffee. Thank you very yeah. much. And then like I ask them for more and they give me like three and I'm like, you guys, honestly, I need you to understand what's happening in this room. Like I need a pot of coffee every morning. You're fucking me up here. Stop making me ask you for things. Thank yeah, you. I had a Keurig for the longest time, and I, I was just them. like, I just want a goddamn pot of coffee. Yeah. So I have a regular one now, and I, I want to know what happens if I make double coffee. Do it once for science. That's my opinion. All right, I'm going to have to. I will report back. All right, fam, so we do have some actual uh, things happening around and in the NHL. They're floating the idea of this June draft. Mm. I'm going to be honest. It keeps sounding stupid, so I don't read the details. What are, like, how are they going to do this shit? The details make it stupider, so get ready for that. It's pretty dumb. You know, I think the part of it that annoys me the most isn't even the idea of, of doing the draft in June. Like, I, I really don't have a problem with that. It's this idea that, like, not only are we going to do it in June, we're going to do it, like, three weeks before we normally do. Like, if, if, you, if you wanted to sell this as... We're just going to have the draft normal time because we have no idea when the regular season is going to get started again. We have no idea if it is going to get started again. We have no idea when next season is going to start. So let's just do the rest of the calendar essentially as normal with maybe the exception of awards because it's hard to give out awards when you don't know if a season is going to going to restart or not um then just roll with that i would accept that but the fact that they're they seemingly are trying to race to get this draft held like the first weekend of june just screams we watch the nfl draft and gary bettman desperately wants to be roger goodell yep that's exactly oh. what it is yeah that's exact yes 100 percent. that's that's what i took away from like the few things i've actually read about this because it continues to seem like a dumb idea having a draft that's supposed to like set up next season before this season starts uh, like, I, there are ways, I guess you could get around the no-player trades thing because they don't know if there's going to be a season yet or not. Like, um, in the NBA draft, there, guys get drafted all the time and they've actually been traded and always takes, like, 24 or 48 hours for the trades to become official. So you have, like, Kobe Bryant in a Timberwolves or Charlotte or whatever hat, uh, you know, and it's it's very clear he's a Laker. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll get that picture in two days. Um I guess there's ways, like, they did sort of something similar with Vegas where it was, like, players to be named later, future considerations, and then, you know, the details of the trades came out after the fact. But I just... What would be entertaining about this draft if it's just, like, and with the fourth overall pick, the Buffalo Sabres? So, like, then it's just roll call. There is yeah. zero drama if we can't have trades. Yeah, that's that's literally the entire reason you physically watch the draft like you don't need to sit there and watch people march up to the podium and thank the host city and then call kids name and maybe say it wrong like you're waiting for Batman to get up at the podium so you could be like oh something's happening but without that what's the point and then that doesn't even touch on the fact that you have to change the entire structure and rules of your own draft in order to shoehorn it in this way and it's it's just, like, so stupid. And I don't even care that Detroit – so, in case people don't know, but I'm assuming everyone listening does, the way that they've changed the rules essentially guarantees that Detroit is going to get the number one overall pick, which, like, I don't even give a shit about that. Detroit was awful this season, so if they get the number one pick, that's whatever. 
but it just seems stupid to do this. Like you set up the draft in this particular way. If you're not willing to resolve the things that you need to resolve, namely the season being called and you having a final standings, you can't do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, my view is that the ideal thing would be just to wait until either you finish the season in some way or you call the season. Because to me, like, I love the draft and I love all the things that happen during the draft, but I agree. It's because, um, it's because the, of the, like, I love the draft just as much for the prospects. Like, I actually do, do, do a lot of research and I do get into that stuff. But I do agree that the most exciting parts are when you have the big trades and the speculation about the big trades and the fact that free agency is in a few days. So there's that speculation and whatnot. So I get that, like, that's how you make the draft the most fun is if you have everything. One thing that I do think the NHL is, you know, because it seems very clear that, because if, if you go back to what happened before the, the NFL draft, the, the NHL, I think it was like two or three weeks before the NFL draft, puts out a statement that says the NHL draft is going to be postponed. Now, I don't quite know if there's another definition of postponed, but in my mind, generally, the word postponed means it's going to happen after the originally scheduled date. So my assumption is that at some point, there was a belief in the NHL, in NHL circles that, okay, well, we're going to have the draft, but at the very least, it's going to happen after its originally scheduled date. Then the NFL draft happens, and I guess they get this brilliant idea that, oh, this is really big. We can use this to have TV time and fill space and keep our partners happy and whatnot, so let's do it earlier. The one thing they don't seem to grasp is that part of the reason why the NFL draft worked as well as it did and part of the reason why so many people watched it is because the players in the NFL draft, most football fans knew because college football is enormous, and everyone that likes football watches college football, at least to an extent, and knows Joe Burrow. They know these guys. They know yeah. guys really up through the middle of the second round, like Jalen Hurts, who the Eagles drafted. People knew him because he finished second in the freaking race for the Heisman this year and played for Oklahoma. Like, only the most diehard of diehard fans watch the CHL. Only the even more diehard fans watch college hockey, and only the most diehard fans have watched any seconds of the U.S. national team development program. Like, <laughs> people don't know these kids. They haven't watched them. There's not an entire sports infrastructure built around junior hockey and college hockey and whatever the hell the U.S. national team development program does. Like, it just, it's not there. So only the most diehard hockey fans are even going to know who these guys are, which means there's going to be less excitement naturally around it because these players just aren't as known yeah and that's that was the thing in comparing to the nfl draft it's 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 ridiculous like espn i think set the set a new record for uh for viewers for the draft and it was like 15 16 million the previous record was like 12 or 13 like, yeah like who yeah. watches the nhl draft other than us that's the and listen yeah i enjoy it it's fun to watch and there's always fun stuff like Boston getting three picks in a row, and you know we can talk about it years later. But that's for us. It's it's a niche sport. It's that's what it is. It's it, I guess you're gonna get some sort of rating as opposed to zero, which is what they're getting right now. All these, you know, I mean NBC Sports. It only exists to broadcast hockey and leaf blower commercials, so <laughs> they could really use some programming right now. Uh, I, I just uh, it just doesn't seem like a good idea to do it without knowing everything else. No, and it you get the feeling that they think that so many people were watching the NFL draft because there's no sports, but no. Yeah, like <laughs> 4 million extra people watched it, yeah. you know, 4 to 6, but they were still going to get 10 yeah. regardless. Right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I, I think, like, there are some reasons why, like, it's not just a total cash grab and whatnot there are some logistical reasons that make some sense one thing that i've heard thrown around a couple times which does make sense is the idea that um that contracts expire before a draft that would be held in fall in, in in the fall so you're talking particularly about like scouts and whatnot like scouts contrast understandably usually are set to expire in july because the draft is done well 
the logistics of having to rework hundreds of scouts contracts, yeah, it could be kind of a nightmare. Do I think they could do it? Yeah, probably. I'm sure the scouts wouldn't complain to get paid for a few extra months. But, like, that is a legitimate logistical issue. And, you know, the money does matter to a degree. You know, these this is a league that I think if they've said that if um, if if there is no rest of the season or playoffs, they're going to lose a billion dollars. And the NHL is not the same cash cow as, as the, the NFL. So... Losing that kind of money, yeah, I mean, it's going to hurt, and it's going to hurt this league for years and years to come. I just don't know if the the benefits of that, of, of having a draft, especially early in June, but even June as a whole, I don't know if they outweigh the, particularly the obvious negatives it's going to have in terms of the GMs building their teams. Yeah, and I like, having it earlier, is that's the dumbest part of this to me. Like, yeah. why would we move it up? Why would it be sooner? Yeah, like you said, unless there's a different definition of postpone, yeah. but based on like based on the prefix of the word, I'm gonna guess it means to move something back. You know, rescheduling is a is a is a word you could use if you're gonna move it up. But I, I just uh, I, I don't. Uh, whatever. Yeah. The NHL is gonna do NHL shit, and there's nothing we can do about it. I guess. Seems that way. All right, Kelly. So you are recently back from Canada. Welcome home. Thanks. We missed you. Uh, the country has done great without you, as you can see. Everything seems <laughs> fine down here. <laughs> Everything's nothing, on uh, fire. Nothing really, uh, <laughs> nothing real really went wrong or, yeah. or anything, you know? It's all, it's all fine. It's all good. But uh, your, old, your old pal, Justin Trudeau, this week said that NHL players entering Canada could be subject to quarantine. Uh, players from other countries coming in, if they figure out a way to resume this schedule before, uh, you know, all the limitations have been lifted on social distancing and all that stuff, is there going to be a way they can actually make this thing work and play some games? No, and and not in Canada because they're, unlike other places, are taking it very seriously up there. And if you... Even if you go from province to province, you have to quarantine for 14 days. And if you don't, you can go to prison. Like, they're not fucking around. So I don't see any reason why they would allow someone to fly in from, like, Germany or something and not quarantine or, or even from, like, Southern California. Like, it's a mess down here. Canadians generally are looking at the U.S. and being like, I don't want those fucking disgusting people in here right now. They're messy. So I can't imagine they're going to let a bunch of people fly in from the States to play hockey games and not make them quarantine. So I, if you do restart, you're certainly not going to be playing games in Canada, for sure. So the Unless they do the, the Moncton thing where like everybody goes yeah. to one place and then they all sit for two weeks and then they can start playing. But yeah. The one thing I will say about that, and I, I, don't, I don't disagree with your, I guess your overarching point, Kelly, that it'll be a logistical nightmare to get things back going again. That said, I never underestimate the power of money to get people, organizations, countries to do something. And sports leagues have money and they generate money. So I sure. just, I, yeah. I just, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's smart to start back up. And I totally agree it would be a logistical nightmare to start back up, especially if you're trying to take all the precautions that probably should be taken. That said, I'm still not ruling out the possibility of them at least trying it just because there's so much money involved and because I'm cynical. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that they're going to try to find some way to, to get these games in. I just don't think they're going to be able to do it in Canada. So, like, Canadian teams aren't going to have home games. Well, I don't think. I mean, it really, costs. no one should have home games. Like, even, even a home game isn't a home game. Is a home game a home game if you're not playing in front of fans? No, I don't. Not really. So who cares so they, where they they're playing? Have to, <laughs> they are going to have to work out, I think, like one place where they do all these games. And this one place can't just have one hockey rink because Florida. there's too many games to play to have them all played on one rink, even if you're doing three or four a day. Like Florida's the place. They, got, they have at least they got ponies, two NHL-sized rinks. Here's the thing. They're far we already know the price. It cost Vincent Linda McMahon eighteen and a half million dollars to uh, you know, Republicans of Florida basically, 
to have WWE deemed an essential business. You'd cut them 20 million bucks. You say, we're having our playoffs here. Boom, done deal. You're an essential business in Florida. All it's right. the simplest thing. That actually, now that you lay it out like that, would absolutely work. I don't know that it's smart because Florida is an absolute Petri dish of disease because no one's listening. But, um, yeah, they would definitely let you do it for the right price. because Such is life. You, you hole up in your hotel. You, that's it. I mean, that, like, that would work. In, in truth, like, the bubble idea would work logistically. The question is, and this is the under, totally understandable issue, by the way. Like, I'm not criticizing the players for this. The players are basically like, I don't want to be away from my family for three months. And right. that is a completely reasonable objection. <laughs> Listen, it's a completely reasonable objection, but it's also bullshit, and we all know it. <laughs> right? <laughs> They would love to be away from their families for three months. I mean, they've been with them now for like two, so they might be over it in a couple more weeks. Exactly! <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure G is just loving a screaming kid every night. He might be. He seems to oh, have... Oh, yeah, I'm sure. He has big time. That's every parent's dream. I don't know. The people, when they have the babies, they seem to like the ba like all the things about them. I don't understand. It, I but know. It seems like I'm a joking. Thing. Yeah, I know. All my friends with kids are like, nah, man, it's cool. I'm like, are you just saying that? Yes. Because like, you want me to join the club too, yes. so so I'm not out here having fun? Or is it actually true? I think it's a little of both, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's probably 50-50. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. So, uh, Charlie, I really enjoyed your article of counting down the top 10 moments of the down period which you described as the post post the 2012 playoffs, basically after the game one win against the Devils. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's that starts the uh, that downhill. starts the down period. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I was I started trying to do this list because I was originally going to do best moments of the decade, like I've done for a lot of these lists, and I realized very quickly that like nine of the moments were going to be from between 2010 and 2012. Like, yeah, th yeah. that was what they, that's where they were all going to be because that was the fun part of the decade. And it was just going to be, okay, well, so really this is the list of the 10 best moments between 2010 and 2012. So why don't we make it a little more interesting and do the 10 best moments that weren't during the fun period of the decade? And I, I really enjoyed this article. If you haven't checked it out, it's on theathletic.com. So uh, and it Because, it, man, this is the period. I mean, this is us right here. This is... This is the period we are most in intimate with. Like, we covered this as a group mostly. Uh, you know, we came together during this time. We started Broad Street Hockey Radio uh, during this time. And shit, you really didn't have many to pick from. Like, that Giroux backhand goal, incredible. The fact that it is a top ten moment of the last eight years, <laughs> like this one single highlight. This one single highlight from a game I couldn't tell you what happened in it. <laughs> Who won any of it? The fact that it made a top ten list, you just go, yep, that's what we've been dealing with for the last eight years. But so I just wanted to know, like, uh, first, if you, if you haven't if you haven't checked it out, check it out. But what are some of uh, like Charlie? What was your number one on the list? So my number one was the um, the actually the most recent stadium series game, the Lincoln Financial Field one, which I just thought in so many ways, you know, it was it was everything that was good about this decade, which I mean, Claude Giroux is top of the list, and it was so perfect that he got the game winner in overtime. You know, you have the outdoor feel, you have the fact that it was in Philly, you have the fact that it was Wayne Simmons' last game, and the fact that he got this amazing send off. I mean, shit, you even had gritty. And, like, Gritty is objectively one of the good parts of this decade. And he yeah. had a major part in, to play in that game with a ridiculous entrance and then him streaking, you know, during the, the stoppage of play. Like, there's a lot of good things that happen here, and they win the game against the freaking Pittsburgh Penguins. So, to me, that was just, like, that's the moment that you're going to say, you know, out, out of the moments in this, you know, in this crappy period of Flyers history, that's the moment that in 10, 15 years, you know, you're going to have probably five times the people that could have possibly fit in that stadium claiming that they were at, mm -hmm. they were at that stadium and stayed the whole time and watched Claude Giroux, you know, score the game-winning goal in overtime. That's Ava to this day bust my balls about it because we were there, they're trailing, and I'm just like, listen, uh, it's going to be a real pain in the balls getting an Uber out of here when this <laughs> thing ends. 
if you want to. Uh, and she's like, absolutely not. <laughs> and to this day, she's like, you wanted to leave. I'm like, I've been to all their outdoor games, and they all end the same. This one didn't. So, Thanks to Ava. Yes, thanks to Ava. So that was number one. We also one. weren't in the rain. Like, we were in a box, so yeah. it was like me wanting to leave was asinine. Yeah, that is pretty asinine. Yeah, like, it's funny, though, that that was number one. And I, I kind of went back and forth between three different ones as the possible number one um, being uh, the Lauren Hart doing uh, God Bless America to Ed Snyder on the phone. That was definitely there. The oh, only on the reason, phone, yeah. Yeah, the only reason why I didn't have that number one is because, like, that was a cool moment in retrospect definitely at the time i don't think anybody really understood what was going on like yeah she was saying god bless america was a big game but like you didn't find out until later that she was facetime and ed snyder and then like obviously we didn't i don't think we really knew just how sick he was at the time yeah. um obviously he passes away two days later so it was kind of one of those like it seems it's it's better in retrospect and it feels more important in retrospect than it did at the time um so that was that was why i didn't put that in number one and then number three was the drew hat trick in game 82 when he uh the flyers are in a, in a win and you're in situation and um and he scores the hat trick, gets 102 points that season, the crowd's chanting his name. That was an awesome moment. And that I think you can make a case for. I just think that the game winner in the, the Stadium Series game was just a little bit more iconic, if that makes sense. Yeah. And if I bet you if he wins the Hart Trophy, we remember that differently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the hat trick. Which he um, should have. Did Gritty, uh, Gritty's unveiling didn't make the list. Yeah, I didn't even think of that one. I that that seems just a little bit too cheesy, but I I think yeah, you could justify it because that day was objectively fun. You know how the mm-hmm. the entirety of Philadelphia were... turned from hating gritty to loving gritty in about like a six hour span. That was yeah, I I could buy that being on there. There were a couple that made me laugh. Like um, when I first read the Lauren Hart one, I was just like perusing the article and I was like, oh no! But then we threw the brace. It was two different games. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, but we threw. Bracelets. The bracelet game was a different game that was post Ed Snyder passing away, and then that became. But then there were like other ones, like uh, Michael Neuvert standing on his head against the Caps. I'm like, yeah, but that was preceded by Steve Mason letting in a half ice goal, <laughs> and we only had like ten shots on net. But it was a great performance, and the um, the ten game winning streak. I was like, and then we became the first team in NHL history to miss the playoffs after having a 10-game winning streak. At the time, it was was great. uh, It was just, what a time. Kelly, what what would you say the highlight of this period has been? So, based off Charlie's list, for me, the highlight was the Drew Hattrick game. Only because, A, I was there, so it was, like, extra. But, B, it was also just, like, a nice, like, putting the – dot on the exclamation point to that season that was just like a giant fuck you from him to everybody who thought that he was you know bad now and uh it sucks that nothing came out of that season but it was it was super fun to see that performance and the way that it kind of capped off the same way that like the 2010 team getting in in the 82nd game it's not you don't want to see someone it would have been cool if he got to 100 points before the last possible game, but the fact that it took, you know, things happening in the last game is exciting. Definitely. Yeah. It, it's like a, it's a bookend on the season. Like, it's a way to put a stamp on that season. Uh, because, like, looking with hindsight, it wasn't nearly as big of a deal at the time, so it didn't really make Charlie's list. And I can't blame him because, you know, everything that's happened since. But, man, getting from 13-2 to two in the 2017 draft lottery... And then that night of making the pick and the ball, it was, you know, we did the live show and it was such a moment for us. And the atmosphere at, uh, at Smith's was so freaking cool. I've never been a part of something like that before. It's yeah. so, like, personally, that was a great moment for me and for all of us. But yeah, like, Nolan Patrick just hasn't turned out to be that franchise player that we thought we were drafting that night. So it, you know misses the list even though those moments were freaking awesome in themselves i mean i think you can make an argument for it on the list it was definitely one that i considered and there's a case to be made that you know number one we still don't know how nolan patrick's career is going to turn out maybe he does become a star and and maybe you know this is just looked at as like a speed bump in his his development into an impact player but um but i think there's definitely a case to be made that 
it doesn't even necessarily matter how it ultimately played out for him that the excitement of the moment the fact that mm-hmm. that came out off of such an awful season and it was like finally something good happened that maybe that justifies its placement even though Nolan Patrick at least so far doesn't really look like he's going to be the superstar that we were were hoping he was going to be when when we jumped up to number two but the moment itself was still awesome, both getting that news that they jumped up from 13 to 2 and then the pick itself. Yeah, and there was such a there was like a contingent of fans that were pissed that they won a couple games at the end of the se- at the end of the season and ended up like, you know, with the 13th pick. That's what they thought we were going to end up at and then suddenly, holy shit, you know, moving up into the top 2, it was incredible. So I was like, "Ah, suck it." That was karma for doing it the right way, even though, you know, that's obviously bullshit. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was a fun time. The way it worked out, we don't know yet, but it was really fun when it happened. Uh, but so I heard Stephen Craig on Flyperbole uh, talking about disappointing flyers, all-time disappointing flyers. And I saw Chris Gratton as the headline photo. Everyone knows I had that Chris Gratton jersey, and that didn't really work out. Uh I want to just know, like, any of these moments that you thought at the time, like the 2017 draft, were going to be a part of maybe Charlie's list and just haven't worked out that way? Hmm. I said the Couturier playoff hat trick because, you know, they end up blowing it. Oh, um, um, yeah. That's a good I think one. That's as well as the uh, Morozik trade because I thought we had our goalie, thought we'd be fine. I, th- I think the Coots playoff hat trick is a great one, especially mm-hmm. because he did it on a, uh, on a torn MCL. Yeah, on a torn. Yeah, like he was seriously injured, and somehow that made him even better. Uh, it should go down as one of those great Flyers moments, except for the fact they choked the game away. Um, another yeah. one that I think is uh, is one of those. I actually consider this one, um, but again, it just didn't make it because they went and lost the next game. Um, the Wayne Simmons hat trick in Game Six against um, against the Rangers. That was really oh, cool. Oh shit! That was so good. Yeah, that was that, was a, that was a classic Wayne Simmons moment, and that should and again if if they win that series, that's way more memorable. But then they lose in Game Seven, so it doesn't matter as much. But that was a great moment. That was one I definitely uh, I definitely consider. But I think that falls into your bucket as you know ones that maybe should have been a top moment, but just turned out. No, not that's to a be. good one for this. I'm trying to think a couple other ones that I considered. Um, I just didn't know like. They were memorable, and one could even say that they were funny, even if it probably isn't the most politically correct thing to say. I thought about oh. Simmons knocking out McDonough and then Emery going after Holpe. They were both very memorable. Oh, they were good. <laughs> those are, you know what? Those are, those are one and two for me. The McDonough <laughs> thing, hashtag GlassJawNY. Uh, my God. Those Rangers fans bitching and whining. The dude cross-checks Wayne Simmons in the head. So Simmons takes a swing at him, and the dude just goes down like a ton of bricks. Like, sorry, don't hit people in the head with your stick. And, I don't know, maybe you won't get punched. That's just (laughs) the way life works. If you hit someone in the head, you're going to get hit in the head back. It's the way I was raised. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) And (laughs) Yeah, I've been hitting the head a couple of times. (laughs) And just Ray Emery, like, Ray Emery telling Holpe, cover up. Like, that's the best shit ever. Yeah, that was really good. He's like, Holpe's like, no. And Emery's like, I'm fighting you. So. (laughs) (laughs) I was listening to this podcast where they're talking about, like, being in a room with Brock Lesnar. And it's like, yeah, man, whatever's going to happen, it's up to him. Uh, (laughs) Like, Ray Emery, like, if he wants to fight you, you're getting fought. Yep. It's just, you know, it's it's one of those moments where, like, you have, like, the competing, like, the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other. You have, like, the angel, you know, fighting isn't good, especially when one guy doesn't want to fight. You shouldn't be cheering that. And then you have, like, the broad street bully on the other shoulder. Like, no, that's fucking awesome. That was amazing. <laughs> you don't want to get beat up. Don't score seven goals on me. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Asking for it at that point. Yeah. Oh my god! I mean, it's just Stop like, and, and, and that's the thing. Like, and I do think there's something to be said about, um, you know, we I think we talked about this on the show a couple times, the uh, the fact that it's been it's been come harder for old fans to accept what the NHL has turned into, and you know, to a degree, like, yeah, you can talk about it as like, okay, boomer and that kind of shit, but like. 
when a fan base is conditioned for 25, 30 years to think that, you know, fighting is good and intimidation is great and, you know, that sort of thing, and then the entire league up and changes face kind of out of nowhere, I understand why there's sort of a cognitive disconnect there where some fans could be like this isn't the game I grew up with because it isn't and it's not the reason why they maybe fell in love with the sport and fell in love with the Flyers in particular so I I do think there's something to be said about that cognitive dissonance that that Holpe play with Emery definitely played into that where you had like the old school fans like yeah this is like the 70s this is exactly what the the bullies would have done and then the new fans being being really uncomfortable with it. It changed the season. They go on to make the playoffs after that. Just like the uh, just like the Ronaldo hit changed the game. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, we got to we got to take a break. We got to take a break. We will be right back on the other side with a uh, with a segment I have uh, I have named now expose yourself. So we'll be back with that on the other side. Uh, just hold on one sec. Listen to uh, an ad or not. I don't know. All right, fam, we are back, and we are back with the segment I have named Expose Yourself. Uh, So every radio show ever, every radio show ever has an Express Yourself segment where they play the, uh, like, the James Brown sample from the NWA song to set up their bit. Uh, But ours is different. This is called Expose Yourself. If we still recorded in a studio, I'd send Taylor a clip of Bill Murray from Ghostbusters 2 saying, And you don't want us exposing ourselves so you'll just have to pretend we use that to set up this uh but this is where we expose our own old takes and today i took a listen back to bsh radio number 227 from october 2nd 2019 that's right it was right after the uh the final preseason game against lasagna as i was calling lasagna at the time (laughs) you guys all got a real good kick out of that it was very good Uh, And hey, we know you've all got some free time, so if you care to, feel free to go back to any episode in our archive, doesn't matter from when, find an old take of ours and expose it, and we can discuss it on the next show. Uh, It makes life easier for me, because I don't have to go back and listen (laughs) to myself. All right, so I I just want to go through some of our takes from this show, and Kelly, you might have had the best one right to lead off in the opening segment. You said... You're driving the Justin Braun welcome wagon, and his addition to the team is very, very good. Fucking nailed that one, didn't I? Yeah, there was a (laughs) lot of apprehension around that, because we were just kind of, at the time, like, okay, he played for a team that had a ton of success, but, like, what he does isn't the most quantifiable thing. How do we, like, is he just... Like, Robert Haig, who played for a good team, so he gets that, oh, he must be a great defensive defenseman. There's no other explanation for it. Like, what do you remember about the Braun signing at the time? So, to be fair, the way I came... To be fair. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of discussions with extremely smart people like Charlie and like Micah McCurdy about Justin Braun and what his numbers that on their face looked bad meant about him and what they might not mean about him. And then after watching him in the preseason, I was like, no, this is good. He's going to be good. And I actually, I think I tweeted something at around this time where I said that I think that he is going to be like one of the biggest net positives for the team. Like he might not, he's not going to be the best defenseman on the team, but his presence is going to improve the team like in a measurable way. And I think it kind of did. Oh yeah, I, I think the cool thing about the about Braun this year um, is that with these types of defensive defensemen, I kind of tweeted about this earlier this week. Uh, not, I wasn't specifically alluding to Braun or, or Robert Haig, who's obviously the flip side of this, um, but just kind of something that popped into my head. A lot of these defensive defensemen, you know, they get praised for being defensive defensemen, but the numbers don't necessarily back it up. Like they have this reputation that oh, they're so good defensively, yet their teams both allow allow both more shots and scoring chances and generally goals with them on the ice and all you hear is the excuses of well it's usage and oh well you got to take into account the way that coaches are telling him to play and it's like look if if you were shown an offensive defenseman 
who didn't score a lot of points, you'd probably question whether they were actually an offensive defenseman. I don't know why the flip side of if you show somebody a defensive defenseman who gets scored on a lot and has a lot of shots against and a lots of lots of scoring chances against when he's on the ice, why do you not have the same skepticism whether he's actually good at defense? That's so fair. the cool thing about Justin Braun is that even before even before this season his defensive metrics were always actually good. Like, he was always actually a good defensive defenseman. The problem with him in his last couple years in San Jose was that it, the numbers said he gave back all of his, all of what he was doing defensively to suppress shots and chances. He was giving it back on the offensive side because his team just weren't creating anything at all. So from a net standpoint, he was a net negative, even though he actually was useful defensively. The thing that that I picked up on really diving deep into his usage in San Jose was that it's hard to be to grade out strong offensively when you're the third right-handed defenseman in a defense core that has Eric Carlson and Brent Burns because it means you were never on the ice with them and they were essentially told when they were on the ice to go play offense essentially and your job is to just not let goals be scored. So you're not getting that boost that every other player on the team is getting by playing with or at least spending some time with Eric Carlson and Brent Burns, so no shit your offensive metrics are going to look bad. Well, this year, the Flyers gave him more reasonable usage. They didn't keep him away from like their two most talented offensive players who on San Jose happen to be their two best defensemen, which is like the rarity. Um, and what do you know? His defensive numbers were still good, and his offensive numbers, while like they're not great, they weren't so bad as to as to take away from the fact that his defense makes him a useful player. And that was exactly the uh, way the fly the Flyers probably drew it up. And props to them; they took a risk on a guy, and it worked out. Charlie, uh, I think you're forgetting that Justin Braun's offensive production matches that of superstar PK Subban. Jeez, Subban, mm. such a bad year, man. Yeah, yeah, it's a rough one. Uh, but one thing, so we kind of all were like, yeah, Braun's been looking good in the preseason. We were all impressed with Braun. I particularly said, like I said, I was I was apprehensive about Braun, and I liked the Niskanen trade. But after watching Niskanen in the preseason, I was worried about how slow he looked, and Braun actually looked kind of good. Uh, and Charlie pointed out that Niski ended the preseason on the third pair with Robert Hag, uh, Robert Haig, excuse me. Uh, so coaches weren't too impressed with him either. Man, Niskanen ended up being a, a hell of an addition, the mm-hmm. perfect partner to put with Provorov, and it just goes to show you, yes, for position battles and things, preseason is important. For a guy with a, a couple of cups under his belt and all the time he spent in the league, it's just a way to knock the rust off. Yeah, we put a lot of stock in the preseason, but it's... The hell else are we going to do? I know, I know. We do a year, we do a 12-month-a-year <laughs> podcast. Got to yell about something. I meant we collectively as hockey fans, not just you specifically. Got to nuke something. But, yeah, it's and it's also worth noting that this was about the time that I think that Flyers fans generally started to accept the fact that maybe the moves that Fletcher made in the offseason they yelled about for quite some time for being bad actually weren't bad at all. So it was a nice little turnaround time before the sickness came. Yeah, Niskanen was, the, Niskanen was the acquisition that I was more worried about. Like the Braun one, you know, I have my concerns, but I, I could see a path where the usage was so ridiculous as San Jose that he could come in and be a decent second pair defenseman and fill a role that they needed, which he ended up doing. The Niskanen, the Niskanen trade worried me. And you know, it partially worried me because of the numbers, definitely, because he was on a downward trend. But it also worried me because, like, I talked to people around San Jose after Braun was traded. And the vast majority of people I talked to were like, no, this guy's still good. You know, he's maybe not as good as he was three, four years ago, but he's still good. He was paired with Vlasic last year. Vlasic looks like he's falling off an absolute cliff, and that dried Braun down. Braun's still a useful player. He'll be fine. There are people I talked to around Washington that were like, Thank God we traded him because he is finished. Like, he is he is dropping off a cliff so fast, and it's scary. He's got two more years left on his deal, and, like, man, this is not a good move for you guys. And that worried me. That Hearing that from people who I trust that, that follow the, the Cavs very closely, that, that legitimately scared me. And then having his preseason not go that well, you know, that just kind of fed into my pre-existing fears about, uh, like, I believe Niskanen 
his final year in Washington was paired primarily with Dmitry Orlov. And Dmitry Orlov's a damn good defenseman. And they sucked by the numbers. Like they did not have a good year. And that was that was concerning. There was there was less there was less of a way to make an easy excuse for why Braun had a down year the previous year, aside from he was just gassed from playing all the way till June in the in the cup final the previous season and took him a while to get back going, which if I remember correctly was the reasoning that Fletcher gave after the trade as to why we should kind of just ignore his twenty his twenty eight uh, two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen season. And if you if you remember, like you mentioned in the outline that I pointed out Niskanen ended the preseason on the third pair with Robert Haig. So clearly the coaches weren't that impressed with him. He also was in game one, was not on the top pair. He was on a pair with Travis Sanheim. So, like, that was real. It, it was very real that his preseason wasn't that great. It was just probably, you know, Bill, as you mentioned, a situation where older guys don't really have to go all out in preseason because they're pacing themselves. And maybe he was just pacing himself and maybe he was just getting used to a new system and new teammates and whatnot because by mid October, he looked really good and he pretty much. Aside from maybe like a two-week period before the bye week, he pretty much looked really good the entire year. So we spent a lot of time, like on previous shows and in this one as well, just calling Steph a Hague defender <laughs> just because she would say, like, he's not the worst in the world. And I forgot all about that. Just oh how, my God, that is her whole brand. Yeah, I know. I just, <laughs> I just forgot. Like, so much has happened this season where... We actually got to talk about hockey and not just bust each other's balls. That is true. And, like, <laughs> I just forgot. Uh, I very badly wanted the orange and black Jordans they wore in Europe. I bought them. Dreams come true. Yeah. Uh, so the Flyers and Carter Hart uh, got the... I said that they got the bad out of the way in their 4-3 loss to Lausanne. They fell, they fell down 4 nothing and just looked like shit. Uh, Hart gave up four goals, and I said, you know what? This is good. He should he should be good for a month. His next bad game should be in November. Well, he had a stretch of three games in October, the 16th through the 27th, where he gave up 12 goals on 43 shots for an astounding 721 save percentage. But, like, honestly, he's been great since then pretty much, but I just, when I'm wrong about things, I like to point them out. It's really funny um, um, how how much we all collectively freaked out about those three days of oh my games. god <laughs> like yeah, people no, were just... losing their minds i talked to cat silverman on the podcast because i wanted to know if carter hart was gonna die like it was so so silly in hindsight we were so because but like we we were so scarred I we know. were like oh yeah just another savior who ain't shit <laughs> like of course cool thanks I'd like to make the point that I never, ever gave up on Carter. Oh, all right. I wouldn't say I gave up on him. No, I was I just was concerned. Yeah, I was, I was scared. Yeah. Things were bad. I thought maybe it was hurt or something. Uh, every time we said pit lick, Steph said pick, pit licker and laughed. <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, it went from just, him being a joke and pits. who the F is this guy to like, yo, Pitlick can play. I'd keep him around. Yeah. Like, he... He's really, like, turned around his perception in a short amount of time here. Yeah, yeah I, I hope he the... finds... Sorry, Charlie, go ahead. No, I said, I... go ahead, Kelly. I was just going to say I hope he finds a spot on a team somewhere because I don't think it's going to be here, but he's yeah, a good liner. I think there's a chance he comes back. Like, I do think... I think he... for him to come back, he'd have to, like, not take much of a raise. But yeah. I think there's a real chance that the market is going to be f absolutely flooded with yeah. fourth line type guys. Like I think there's going to be guys who, you know, are restricted free agents that are fourth line types that teams just aren't going to qualify because they're going to, you know, they're going to need every little bit of cap space. So qualifying a guy, you know, for even for an extra $300,000 more than they want to, it's not worth it because there's just going to be so many guys out there. And if that's the case, if there's just a glut of good solid fourth liner types that hit the market whenever free agency happens maybe tyler pitlick looks at it and says you know what i have the coaches trust here i like being on this team this is a good group of guys why not resign for another year for for a reasonable price and you know make the numbers work like i could see it if he if he goes out there and says i want two and a half mil then yeah goodbye tyler you know thanks for thanks for playing great year go find your money somewhere else but this could end up being a situation where 
a guy like him who's in a spot where he's established himself doesn't necessarily want to get to, you know, doesn't necessarily want to push for the big contract this year because I just don't know if there's going to be big contracts out there for guys like that. Yeah, wait a year. That Seattle money will come in and everyone will pretend they're like freaking rich again for a season. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Kelly, I want to do you own the board game Taboo? I do not own it, but I have played it. I'm okay, aware of I just it. I need somebody to get like that buzzer. <laughs> Anytime I say the sentence it is what it is, I want you to hold that buzzer up to the microphone and just hammer it <laughs> uh, to stop Steph me from saying it. sentences with no meaning. Steph might have it and she would be perfect for that job, really. Yeah, I I, I heard myself say it is what it is and I wanted to punch my iPad. <laughs> I was like, shut up, idiot. Say sentences with meaning. Uh that was just that. Um Charlie, you were quite encouraged by the fact that the Flyers didn't put Nolan Patrick on long-term injured reserve. Because obviously, if he was going to miss a month, they would just do it and not have, uh, not have all, the, uh, all the cap implications that they had to deal with with him not being on LTIR. Obviously, we know how that turned out. It was just a complicated situation that nobody really knew how to get a grasp of. It was just funny to hear us all like trying to convince ourselves, no, it's fine. They know what's going on. Well, I don't think I don't think they knew what was going on, but I do still hold to the like the underlying truth of that in that they still thought there was a chance that he could come back pretty quick. They also th- they thought there was a chance he wasn't going to come back very quick, but they wanted to leave themselves the possibility open that hey, if he wakes up and the headaches are gone and the treatment works, then boom, we can put him back in. I just think that they just didn't know anything. That it, everything was so uncertain with his status and with how bad the migraines were and how long they were going to last. They didn't want to put themselves into a position where, if they had, to, if he did become healthy, that they couldn't bring him back. So I still, I still hold to the underlying premise behind that. Obviously, he didn't come back soon, so in, in a way, it aged poorly. Yeah. But I, I think that was the reason why they didn't want to stick him on long-term IR to start the year was because they were still holding out hope that this wasn't going to be a a super long-term thing. One of the best uh, exposed takes out of this actually comes from a take from Elaine Vigneault himself. Uh, He said after the Rangers preseason game, before they went to Europe, he would be surprised if Joel Farabee wasn't in the opening night lineup. Owned. And then he and Phil Myers were sent down prior to the game against Chicago. And it was just a funny, like, uh, we were, I, I just made a joke, like, you know, he takes a sip of whiskey and then goes, I fucking love surprises. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> like, great. I love that. Like, he said himself he would be surprised, <laughs> and he's the one making the decisions, <laughs> and he surprised himself. Yeah, that was, that was a weird, like, stretch of days. It legitimately was. And that was, you know, it ended up not playing out this way. And... I'm very, very glad it didn't play out this way. But that was a point where I was a little concerned that there might be a disconnect between Fletcher and Vino. Um, because it did seem like Vino was of the belief that Joel Farabee was one of his best 12 forwards and that if he wanted to win game one, Joel Farabee was going to be in his lineup. And then I was worried that like the cap concerns and Fletcher wanted to look more long term. I was worried that that might be a little bit of early contention between the two of them. And as it turned out, it seems like they have a great working relationship. Like there have been times where the two of them have disagreed. And when they've disagreed, generally speaking, Fletcher has acquiesced to Vino. Like I think I believe Fletcher. I had heard this off the record. Fletcher then said on the record at a, I believe at the. Um, the flyer season ticket holder thing that um, that basically he didn't want to call up Morgan Frost, but Vino was like, I need this guy. He's like, all right, fine. You say, you say you need him. You know, we've gotten good reviews from, um, from Scott Gordon. Fine. We'll call him up. It's not my ideal preference, but you say you need this guy. Let's get him. And I think that that's a good way for the, the two of them to work together yeah, where like, that. you know, it's not like one guy is winning all the arguments. But it's not like, and I'm not saying that both on Fletcher's side and Vino's side. Like, Vino shouldn't be in complete control of the roster and the lineup and whatnot, but Fletcher shouldn't have veto power over everything, too. It should be a, you know, a partnership. And I got the impression over the course of the year that, that it legitimately was a partnership. Whereas when this happened, I was a little worried that Fletcher was, you know, being a little hextallish. Let me put it that way. 
I will owe anybody one dollar <laughs> if they can tell me right now why we talked so much about Andy Walensky. It's because who I called Saul Alinsky. It's Saul because Alinsky. he was injured and we couldn't send him down, and his cap hit was what was fucking everything up. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. even remember the name when I heard myself saying it so much. I was like, who the fuck is Andy Wolinsky? If he hadn't gotten hurt, we would have forgotten about him by now, but he fucked things up for like a solid two weeks, so now he's burning. Yeah, that was memories. yeah, it was it was crazy how much time we dedicated to Andy Wolinsky. Because Charlie let off the show, like, this is ridiculous. This dude was never making the team. And because of some stupid shit in the CBA, we can't just release him to Lehigh Valley until he's healthy, which he is not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have we overrated Phil Myers was a question we spent time asking ourselves. Nope. And honestly, um, you know, through a lot of this season watching him, we may have. Nope. But he started to really turn it on with, uh, with Travis Sanheim. He, he hasn't looked particularly dynamic, especially from an offensive standpoint. But he seemed to be finding his groove quite well. Um, you know, from January on, really. People need to understand that we're playing a long game with Phil Myers. He's not going to be immediately awesome. Like, you have to remember this was an undrafted find that they plucked out of nowhere. He's going to be pretty good, in my opinion. And and by pretty good, I don't mean a number one overall defenseman in the NHL. I mean a a pretty good second-pair defenseman. But you just got to give it a little bit of time to get there. And like Bill just said, we saw it starting to get there before the world ended. So I have every bit of confidence that it's there. He just hasn't gotten there yet. I was fascinated by how, like, the wild swings of opinion regarding Phil Myers over the course of the year. Because if you remember, like, there's a, there's a, uh, I think a narrative that's been created after the fact that, like, Myers started out slow and then really got going in January. But if you remember, there was a point, I believe it was like early to mid-November, where Myers was the league leader among rookies in plus minus, and he had like three straight games with a goal, and people were losing their goddamn minds over Phil Myers. And I remember back then being like, you know, he's yeah, he's making all these plays, but like the reason why his plus minus is through the roof is because... The Flyers are like have unbelievably high shooting percentages and save percentages when he's on the ice. That's not going to keep up. Like he's not bad, but he's not this dominant defenseman who deserves to be a dark horse for the Calder. So there was that. And then he went through that period in like December into early January where he kept making mistakes. And then people wanted to send him down to the minors. It was like, is this guy even an NHL defenseman? Does he think the game well enough to be an NHL defenseman? You know, seeing that on Twitter. And it was just funny because you went from like, holy shit, this guy's amazing to, oh God, this guy's bad. And now we're kind of getting back to, holy shit, this guy's amazing again. Like, this is just what happens with most young defensemen. They go through ups and downs. They go through periods, most talented young defensemen. They go through periods where they look great. They go through periods where they look awful. And then generally speaking, they end up falling somewhere in the middle and becoming a useful second pair defenseman that can take on solid minutes but isn't a superstar. Now, is it possible Myers becomes a star? Yeah, maybe. He's got the physical ability. But even if he's just like a better Braden Coburn, that's awesome. No, if he's Braden Coburn with a little bit better offense, cool. Yeah. You know, that's a nice player right there. He's, he's been on some good teams. Uh, I forgot that the season was a couple of days away from starting for the Flyers, and Samuel Moran was still healthy. And we're talking about him as a part of a potential rotation, especially with Myers getting sent down. I thought he got injured much earlier. And it's funny how quickly the sports world moves. Like, Samuel Moran is nowhere in my mind as a part of this team in the present or future. And at this point, I was like, I'd rather go with the unknown in Moran over Robert Haig. And Robert Haig's been a bit of a pleasant surprise in terms of He's been better than I expected uh, in in 2019-20. He's not a star or anything, but he's been better than I expected. And Samuel Moran, with yet another big injury, it's like, sorry, bro, I just don't think it's going to work out for you. No. And 
And you wrote here in the outline, why is he so bulletproof? And the only reason he is is because they took him so high as a draft pick. We've had this conversation Oh, that was – we. I asked why is Haig so oh, bulletproof because it looked like he was going to be in the lineup no matter what. Yeah, I don't – Myers gets sent down, all that stuff. I'm still trying to figure that one out because people have yeah. an obsession with Robert Haig that I cannot wrap my brain around. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Sam Moran hasn't been a part of the future of this team for me since, like, the year after he got drafted. So <laughs> it's kind of nice. I mean – I don't want to say that that's a shitty thing to say. It's not nice that he got hurt. It sucks for him. It sucks big time. Um, and I'm sorry that it happened. But it, if it finally closes this chapter for the Flyers, I don't know if that's a bad thing. Like, it's, it's been this, like, ongoing, like, on-again, off-again shitty relationship that never ends. And both parties would probably benefit from moving on from each other. So maybe this will just, finally oh. be the time that that happens. Uh, see, I, I don't. I don't know if I agree. Like, I, I certainly don't agree that Sam Moran is better off elsewhere at this point because I just feel like, like at this point, the at this point the Flyers have invested so much in him, not just as like a player, but as a person. That I don't know if he's going to get a better chance, like a better realistic chance at even like getting an NHL shot at this point, considering all the injuries yeah, and surgeries and whatnot. Elsewhere for him is the SHL. Exactly. Exactly. Like. If he's going to get an NHL shot, it's going to be from the, a team like the Flyers that feels like after all the shit he went through, he kind of deserves one. If he but, were to get traded to like St. Louis, I don't think they're going to care. But there's no there's no room for him here. I mean, he's guys not going to be an NHL player here. Uh, guys, Brolin's guys get contract hurt. is up and you know after this season, Niskanen's in two. I mean, if we're I don't replacing know. Replacing Braun and Niskanen with Sam Moran, I'm gonna have a lot of fucking problems with this I'm team. Just, well, no, but they I've might use him as the seven. I've always just wanted to see him get a shot. They might use him as the seven. I mean, he's on a yeah. cheap. He's on a cheap deal. The cap's probably gonna be stagnant, if not going down, for next year. It's plausible to me that he could be the seven next year. All right. I've just always wanted to see him get a chance. That's fair. Uh, and finally, to wrap up, expose yourself. I stated that Peter Morozik has a chance to prove me retroactively right about him. Um, he did not. Ah, he tried real hard, though. He really, really <laughs> did. He was, like, mad this year, right? Yeah, he's just fine. He was pretty bad. Was he pretty bad? I thought he was, like, not great, but not awful. Yeah, I don't Basically, know if he, he like, Peter if he, like, actively lost them a whole bunch of games, but he definitely wasn't winning them a whole bunch of games either. I know the Flyers lit him up real good one time. Well. You know, the Flyers are an offensively elite team in the NHL. So. Yeah. yeah we, prob the cup. we probably should talk about uh, Rasmus Sandin, right? Did we? Yeah. yeah. We talked about him some last week, Didn't I believe, we? but it wasn't official because of whatever. He had to wait a certain amount of time for it to be real. Uh, what's up with Rasmus Sandin? Like, who is this guy? How's he going to contribute? I know he's going to, like, be another guy in this bottom six rotation. Do you think, you know, we just talked about Tyler Pitlick and how he'll probably have to take a walk unless he wants to make a bunch of money. How do we see him fitting into this thing? I mean, I think he's a guy who they see as a potential bottom six guy. And if, you know, Michael Roffel's deal expires at the end of next year and maybe he's the guy who slides into that spot as like a support piece type player who can maybe play off the lineup if necessary, but ideally is on your third, ideally on your fourth line. They like him. They like the skill set. You know, they they specifically targeted him as a, a free agent signing. He's going to be 24 when next season starts. So I, I wouldn't go as far as to say he's an exciting player, but I absolutely believe he's in the mix. You know, this is a guy who I would make sure you know his name because come next training camp, whenever the hell that's going to be, he's going to be in the mix to make the team. Now, whether he makes the team, I don't know. He, he very well might not. He might spend some time in the AHL. He might just not be that good of a player, and he might never crack the NHL. But he's going to be involved in the race to earn a spot on the team next year. Like, you don't go out... You don't go out and bring over a 24-year-old who's in his statistical prime from the best league in Europe and sign into an entry-level deal if you don't think he can make a very quick jump to the NHL. So I would definitely keep him in mind as a guy who should be in the mix when you're you know, coming up with your cap-friendly lineups for the 2020-21 season. Yeah, I think the training camp this year, whenever that happens, is going to be really fun to watch for that reason specifically, that the bottom six battle is pretty stacked with bodies, and it's going to be interesting to see who comes out of it. 
Also, I think, like, I think I think I said Rasmus Sandin. I meant Lena Sandin. My bad. Lena. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I I'm gonna I'm gonna mix Rasmus? these two up constantly. Could we get Rasmus? Maybe. Maybe it's like. I think I said it too. Yeah. It's like uh, isn't there a clause in the CBA somewhere that you when you have one brother you have to have all of the brothers? The Luke Shen clause. Yeah. The yeah. That's the one. We have to enforce <laughs> the Luke Shen clause and get Rasmus as well. Can we get the other Kacha while we're at it? Yeah, I think that that would have been nice. At, the uh, deadline this year. I, I also happen. find myself like endlessly skeptical of um of Toronto defense prospects because I just wonder if like are they actually good or are Toronto fans just batshit insane and make everyone think they're going to be superstars? Cough, yes. cough, Travis Dermott. The answer to that question is probably yes, yes. on both fronts. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, when one of these guys does turn out, it'll be like, oh, look at that, huh? Wow, way to go. Uh, yeah. The one thing I love about the Sandine signing is, um, you know, we talked a lot on the episode we just went through for Expose Yourself about that competition. Like, we talked about how Bunneman and Terensky made the team, and all of us basically said, if you laid out the entire organizational depth chart in front of us and asked us to circle the guys we thought were in the mix, none of us would have circled those two. And I just think, man, competition was so important to the bottom of this roster that they just keep adding to that and make sure that guys are always fighting for those spots. Because we, you know, there's going to be your Vorobievs who were like, yeah, they might be the most talented, but you know what they aren't? The best NHL players. So we need a constant turnover there. And you don't want to pay guys at the bottom of your lineup. You want to have those guys on ELCs and stuff, so constantly being able to bring in guys, not just draft picks, but international signings, undrafted free agents, whatever, is a great way to find value, and they're doing that and keeping that competition rolling. Awesome. Cool. I would love for them to be able to go and get a Miko Lettinen kind of guy who's like, oh, he might be their best defenseman, but, you know, that's not the way it is for us, I suppose. Not usually. What do, is he? Is he actually any good, Miko Lentinen, with the Leafs? I mean, he was good in the KHL. Okay. I, how good he's going to be? You know, didn't everybody think that Nikita Zaitsev was going to be a star because he was real good in the KHL, and then he turned out to suck? So like, you just it don't know. A lot. Yeah. You don't. You don't know. Some sometimes they do. Like sometimes you get an Artemi Panarin, and sometimes you get a Nikita Zaitsev. You just don't freaking know. You got to see how they play in the you know the North American style and whatnot, and how their game translates. And you hope it does. And but it's far it's far from a, a foregone conclusion that I, he's going to be some superstar. He could, but I mean, far from a foregone conclusion. We got anything else? What else? Uh, anything? I think we're at an hour, right? Yeah, I think we've hit one an hour, hour five Anyone minutes, to say? boys. All right. It. Well, uh, I think that about wraps it up. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out. All that stuff. If you haven't already, you know the drill. Hit subscribe wherever there are podcasts. Just search Broad Street Hockey. You will get a plethora of content delivered to you. Uh, you know, it's it's simple. Just subscribe. Give us five-star reviews. Uh, say good stuff about us because we're egomaniacs and we really need the validation, especially me. Everyone else is a lot more well-adjusted than I am. Uh, but... <laughs> That, that's pretty much it um, for Charlie and Kelly. My name is Bill Matz. Have a great week, everybody. Are you ready to talk about sports? Yeah! Who's gonna score hockey goals? Our team! No one does more hockey than our boys. The Flyers! Philadelphia